when you really look at what allows people to survive and thrive and get along well, underneath it all, Matt, is economics. Come along on a journey toward wisdom. So when people are free, they are empowered. They make choices. They realize they're in control of their destiny. They work harder because they know they're going to be able to keep what they earn. This is Seeker with Dave Jenks. I'm Matt Hayes. Dave, in our last podcast, we talked about the social contract between humans and ourselves and our society. And you ended talking about there's different types of freedom and social contracts. And we talked about economics. How does that all start to play into this connection that we all have with each other? I think economics is at the root of the social contract. Why did human beings work together to begin with to survive? I mean, they did it so that they could hunt and they could gather and they could take care of their offspring, their children, and they could protect each other and make clothing and, and they could survive. And I mean, thrive might not have been a word you would use, but they succeeded. And even though their lifespan was short, they did that. And so what was underneath it? Well, it was the exchange of services. Some people were hunters. Some people were preparing the food. Some took care of the children. Some carried the goods from one place to another when they moved around. They were nomadic. It starts right there. And we come together to serve each other. So even if you went a little further in humanity where they started to have farms and that, well, there was people that worked the farm. There were people that harvested it. There were people that were specialists in shoeing the horses and doing the work of blacksmiths. There were people that built the wagons. There were people that helped build the barns. And all of that was an exchange of services. And of course, at the front end, often it was just bartering. Uh, You do this, I'll do this. Or in the community, they would agree on. And then it got to the point where they would trade things like, okay, I have a lot of corn and you're raising chickens. Okay, I'll trade you some corn for chickens. When you really look at what allows people to survive and thrive and get along well, underneath it all, Matt, is economics. There is so much with economics that we can talk about. It is such a deep issue with so many different elements. So let's start with the basics. What are the basics that we need to know before we really dive into this topic? Well, one thing I'd say as a seeker, and I've been, I've studied economics for since I was in college. It wasn't my major, but I took courses in it. And then later in my life, and particularly the last seven or eight years, I have read all the classics. Some of them I reread, like Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, but Adam Smith, Friedrich Hayek, and these classic economists. And what I would say is that people overly complicate economics, particularly in today's day and age with trading and the Wall Street and lending and the complexity of currency evaluations and currency trading and all of that. But down at the fundamental, and this is what matters, I think, to us all to really understand economics, it's really about money. It's about how money works because money is just a means we use for exchange. We used to barter and that happened at the local level. But once we got more and more complicated and needed things where the trade wasn't easy to do, then we had to have a method for me paying you for something. And we created currency. We created money. And money was a way that allowed me to pay for things that I wanted from you and then for you to pay me for things you wanted from me, even when it wasn't just a direct exchange for each other. So underneath economics is this idea of value, that what I do, either a product or a service, has value and that I want to exchange that value for something and that is what I get money for. Now, money can come in the way of cash. I just get paid something or it can come in credit. I Oh, I need to borrow some money in order to invest in this business. And then that leads to lending and investing the use of money 
for the purpose of what? Building more service, more products, or a structure, or something I need, and then a return. If I invest my money in savings or any other way, then I want a return on that. I want it to grow, that money to grow. So we need that. And then underneath it all, we need in our society, this is what's critical. And of course, we've become now a world society, but fundamentally at the societal level, we need some foundational things to make economics work for everybody. Number one is we need a currency. We need to agree on what that currency is worth. The value may go up and down. It may go up and down in relation to other currencies. There has to be a way that we monitor that because really in many ways, money is just an idea. I mean, it isn't backed by gold anymore. There's no way that inherently that piece of paper that we call a $20 bill is worth anything other than that the we've agreed as a society, often through our government, but we've agreed as a society that it's worth something. And it's pretty much worth the same, you know, from time to time and from transaction to transaction. But then underneath that, we need, and this is really important, uh, Matt, because it starts to get to what underpins freedom. We need the rule of law. In other words, we need a set of laws that everybody abides by. It's not one set for you, one set for me. Oh, you have rules and it makes me lesser because I don't have the same rights under those rules. I can't get the same outcome. You can take advantage of me because the rules favor you rather than me. So the rule of law just says we're going to create laws that define how we work economically and other ways, and we're all going to abide by them. So we need the rule of law. Then we need property rights. This was something that John Locke was so critical about, and we put in the front end of our Constitution, that there is the right to own my personal property. I have that right. It's defined, it's mine. And when it comes to land, of course, there's all kinds of records that are kept about who owns what parcel of land. And when you pass it or when you sell it or move it on or pass it on to your estate, there's all kinds of paperwork that happens that records that deed that, that this land is owned and we can define who owns what. But it's true of my car, it's true of my house, it's true of my clothing. That there has to be this opportunity that I have to own things. And then there has to be the laws of contracts that we have stipulations that when we have a written agreement that both parties have to abide by that agreement. We put all the elements in it, what, what we're agreeing to, the terms and conditions, the money involved, and that we agree on that contract. So contracts, having a system of contracts, really critical. And then finally, we need a really good court system to uh, determine grievances. So if I think you didn't live up to your contract, I need to have a way to make it right. I need to go to some system of justice, a court, and have it heard and be made whole by you if, if you falter or you get to defend yourself and find out, no, it wasn't your fault, it was my fault, or we hadn't really agreed on that. And the court says, no harm. We need currency, first of all, a rule of law, a property rights and contracts, and then courts that help us stay true to the contracts. So we have all these basics now, all these different elements. How do they all work together? How does this whole system of economics work? Well, it works, first of all, because there is some authority that is in charge of it. So it's making the rules. Usually it's our legislature or the, the executive branch of the government that implements it. Various agencies of government that says this is the way it is. This is how deeds are recorded. This is how currency is created and, and how we determine its value. And here's our system of courts. So one is it's the governance and you and I are going to get into that later. But the other is there's a form of ownership and that is who owns and who is in control of the assets and the production system. So there's a set of classic 
terms people have heard, and I just want to get clear in our mind. There's capitalism, which means that the capital is owned by the individuals or the corporations. They own the assets. They own the capital goods, the production, the facility, the means of production. They may own the property rights as well as the intellectual property rights. It's owned by somebody. It's owned by the individuals or the grouped individuals, because a lot of us forget we think capitalism is about big corporations, but big corporations are owned by stockholders and stockholders can be uh, retirement funds and us as individuals, mutual funds. But the point is in there, the money, the assets and the use of them, the production is owned by individuals or the extension of individuals. Now in socialism, it still works that way, but then there is taxation and the taxation takes the production and it spreads that money out for other purposes that everyone generally benefits from or is redistributed to individuals in need or who are part of a government program. So in socialism, and the more you move towards socialism, the more and more the assets, the economic underpinnings, the, the GDP, the gross domestic product, combination of products and services, the more and more of that is controlled by the government. The more it's controlled, the more that becomes socialistic. Then there's fascism. Now, people misunderstand fascism because of World War II and think that it just has to do with dictators. It doesn't. In fact, Roosevelt was a big fan of fascism. He followed Mussolini. He, he liked Mussolini's approach because all that Mussolini said was, don't own the production, just control it. In other words, let private interests take the risk own the capital, invest in the new buildings, do the production, incur the costs, and we, meaning the government, will control what happens. We'll limit their pricing. We'll limit their distribution system. We'll decide who gets to be in what business. We'll regulate it. And so fascism is a place where the ownership is still private, mostly, but the control through regulation and oversight is governmental. And then finally, you get to communism, which is where it's all owned by the government. Everyone owns the common good, that it's all owned, in a sense, by the people, but it really means by the representatives of the people, which is typically the party in power, the Communist Party. So it's all controlled and it's all owned by them. There's no private ownership, including of real estate or property. It's decided who gets to work where. It's decided how much their production is, what the price is, five-year plans, all of that. It's total central control of the economy. That's really the range of the control of economics. So let's take a look back at the history of these systems because we've we have some evidence of certain parts of the world using certain types of systems and kind of a mix of them. What has created the most wealth? What's been the most abundant for the citizens of the planet with these systems? So far it would have to be free market capitalism kind of hands down. It's interesting because there always seems to be this slide toward more socialistic, even more communistic or fascist orientations, because I think there's a great number of people who would like things done for them and feel that somebody should be regulating what goes on and how can something happen just of its own accord. It doesn't that sound a little crazy and out of control. So I think we have a lot of myths about the power of centralized planning, that it will protect us, that it will serve us, that it'll make things happen better. But the history says the opposite. And I've studied this, so I know I'm going to a short form on this, but I've studied it in depth from a lot of points of view. To me, one of the best examples was right at the founding of the country. The pilgrims came over. They were set up in their agreement to work as a, uh, what you would call a communist or a commune. Everyone would work 
all the, the result would be shared by the community, and then everyone would take from that common share what they needed. And after two years, half the people had died. There was no productivity. And William Bradford, who was in charge of this society, this, this village of pilgrims, said, you know, this isn't working because we have a lot of people that are just taking and not giving. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to change it. We're going to give every family a certain amount of land, depending on how many members of the family. We're going to give them this land. They can produce whatever they want and whatever they produce, they can keep or they can trade. They can give to others for other things. Well, it just turned it around in the next year or two. That was when Thanksgiving happened. They really had this robust outcome because people were being productive. They got to keep it. And what comes out of that, Matt, is this sense of when you have ownership, when you get to keep the results of your labor, you are motivated to do the labor. And you're motivated to do things that are beneficial to you and to serve others. So one of the things that's the key of this free market economics is there are there's no issue of the commons. They call it the commons. When things are owned in common, people misuse it. One is they don't contribute to it. A few of them do. And then they all want to take from it. And they often take more than their share. In fact, there was more thievery going on in that early part of the pilgrims first two years than there was later when people owned things. They protected them. They took care of them. And then when you look at the more modern times, when you look at communist Russia and you look at the communist dictatorships in South America, all of them have struggled to create economic wealth for the masses. Now, the only communist entity that seems to be having an economic power right now is China. But what you find when you look at China is they're building in ownership and incentives within a communist controlled political environment. They're creating sort of pockets of entrepreneurship. And one of the best examples of how powerful free markets are, are Hong Kong. Now it's owned by China. But when Hong Kong was independent and it operated on its own and it really was almost no regulation at all and free markets and free market capitalism was allowed to work, it was probably one of the highest per person GDPs in the world. We need to understand the power of capitalism and the power that it brings to serving each other. And a lot of people misunderstand business. We sort of talk about the private sector business and the public sector government as if our myth is that government people are more interested in the general welfare than businesses. But the truth is that isn't how it works. They're just as self-interested at keeping their job and keeping their division going and, and getting the money out of the coffers to run their division. They're part of the government, their agency, as a business would be. But the difference in business is it can fail. In other words, if you're in business and you don't serve people or you don't do it efficiently or economically, you're going to be out of business. So there's a self-corrective thing that happens in business. And I think that it's important to understand that businesses, first of all, offer something people want. Number two is they have to gain customers. They have to go out and ask for people to do business with them. And third is they have to deliver what they said they would deliver and they build a reputation and they have to do it cost effectively or they'll be out of business. So they have to do it at a good price and they have to compete price wise. Therefore, successful businesses are successful because they serve the general needs because people vote with their dollars. So I would just say the thing that happens in free markets, it's the most democratic system there is because people get to vote with their money. What are the pieces that make a free market 
so powerful. So when people are free, they are empowered. They make choices. They realize they're in control of their destiny. They work harder because they know they're going to be able to keep what they earn or use what they earn. So the important thing about capitalism versus, let's say, socialism or particularly fascism and communism is that free markets give people choice. The others operate on coercion. In other words, it says, you're going to do this. Communist says, this is what you're going to produce. This is what you're going to charge. Fascism says, well, you can produce what you want, but here are the limits and the controls. And socialism says, you can produce what you want, but we're taking a bunch of it and giving it to other people. So capitalism says, it gives us the greatest amount of choice. That automatically leads to cooperation. Because if I don't cooperate, if I don't cooperate together, if I don't cooperate with my customers, if I don't provide my customers what they want, they'll go somewhere else and there's competition. So competition forces me to be better than somebody else because I want your business and they may do it cheaper. Mine may be better. Whatever it is, I have to convince people that I have the best value and therefore I have to produce the best value. No one is guaranteeing me that I'm going to get business. I have to go earn it every day. And then the final thing is it leads to collaboration, meaning people cooperate together. They collaborate. They collaborate to form a business. They become partners and they form Google. They collaborate with another company. They join forces together and that becomes even more effective. So capitalism is the one and free market capitalism is the one that most serves the individual need to be free, the individual need to have abundance of choices and to make those choices themselves. It leads to the greatest amount of cooperation and collaboration and it leads to the greatest outcome of quality because it's competitive. Those are the things, Matt, I think that make the biggest difference. So that's a look at the big picture of how the system works. But when it comes to finances, so many people think about themselves individually in their own pocketbook and their own situation. So how does this play out in our own personal finances? I think when we understand money and we understand the path of money and we understand how finance works and we don't play victim to it. We just understand the rules. And it comes this way. There's two different ways that you can get money. You can earn it or you can get it passively. Earn it means I get paid for what I do. So what you want to do is build your value as a person, your productivity and your work ethic, your intelligence, your knowledge of things, your your what we call bandwidth of skills, things that are marketable, things that people would hire you for. Or if you're starting your own business, things that people need, things that you can provide. You can provide services, coaching, or you can provide counseling or you can provide therapies or you can provide uh, caretaking services, whatever it is. So the thing is to increase your own productivity and your value. The value on the one hand, productivity means I have a work ethic. I work efficiently. I work intelligently. I work smarter, not harder. That's on the earn side. On the passive side, which is really, I don't like to call it passive income because you really earned it, but it's when you've invested money. So in the one hand, you're working for money. And on the other hand, money's working for you. So in passive, it's all about taking your life and spending a certain amount and maybe giving away another part, depends on your philosophy, and then saving the rest. And out of that savings, begin to invest it. The only difference between savings and investing is the assertiveness of your decision-making. Saving, you're kind of putting the money away for a rainy day and you, you know, you're going to sort of want a return on it, but you're not being particular. In investing, you're looking for a maximum of return. You're looking for a maximum of return to you. So you're going to invest it where you'll get that, of course, in blended with risk, because high risk doesn't always mean high reward. High risk usually means a chance at more reward, but you're also playing that against that you might lose it all. You want to play that game, Matt, of living on 70% of your earned income so that you can save a section and then ultimately have enough to invest because 
When you invest money, the compounding effect works, meaning you're getting a certain amount of interest every month or year, and then that you're getting that interest again on a greater amount. And over time, that can build massively, right? It can build massively. Now, let's go to the final part of this. It's called the cash flow quadrants. Money can come to you four different ways. You can work for somebody else. You can be employed. Number two is you can work for yourself. You can be in business for yourself or be a solo provider, solopreneur. Both of those things are sources of income, but they're earned income. Or this is where the cash flow quadrants change. You can own a business or you can invest the money in like real estate or something large that where it has a potential of bigger return. That's where you get the passive income. The greatest wealth has been built in owning businesses. Once I know I do something well, if I can begin a business that does that and first do it myself and add some other people and then add some machinery or some technology that helps me do it more, do some better marketing, get more customers. And now I have a business that operates on its own and I'm in charge of it. And then ultimately they call it's called real passive income where I own a business and I have hired other people to run it and I'm now its owner and it's sending me you know, mailbox money. I'm getting profit statements every month. That's where the greatest wealth is built. Now in investing, classically over time, the best investment has been real estate because real estate has its own dimensions of increasing in value and of always being worth something, even though the market can go up and down a bit. It hasn't much over time, but we did certainly in the 2007, 2008, there was a serious dip, but over time, it's going to increase. Plus, if you are renting it, those people are paying off your mortgage. And so as you get rid of the debt, you then increase the value of the asset that you have. When it comes to personal, it's about working for money and working smarter and getting more money or owning things like stock in a company, which would be investing or actually owning a company. And that would be where your passive income comes from, Matt. And that really is where wealth is built. And depending on how you choose to live your life and how to earn your money and how to use your money, when you talk about freedom, this is the ultimate way to be able to have the freedom to be able to do what you want. You can have choices to live your life, to be able to do different things for yourself or your family. The more you control it and the more you use these different options, you then have the freedom to be able to do what you personally want to do. Absolutely. That's the reason to do it. So we have all these different roles that we talked about. What are these different institutions and groups and the type of people that are involved in an economy? We started out talking about personal freedom and values of a society, a civil society. And then we talked about economics as we have here. And now the question is, what best serves the society? Is it in the individuals? Is it groups? Is it businesses? Is it the government? That takes us, Matt, to our, our next episode of Seeker. To hear other episodes of Seeker, go to DaveJenks.com.